0: You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. What is science? Where does it come from? Is it a cupboard?
1: Hello, this is Wonder Cupboard. You probably know that because it says it on your screen. But my name's Ian.
0: My name is Eleanor.
1: And what are we going to be talking about this episode?
0: Well, this episode I am pleased to present our first collection of episodes so we came up with a spring summer collection Mm
1: -hmm. is it a capsule
0: um oh yeah of course Mm -hmm. it's going to be three episodes of course one per month the first episode is going to be so the first two episodes are going to be about artificial refrigeration which is such a huge topic it turns out that we decided to split into episodes so Basically, artificial refrigeration covers both refrigeration in terms of you've got a fridge and you put your food in it, but also air conditioning, right? And the two histories are, are in kind of intermingled, but they're kind of separate. And so it's it, it's quite hard to tell them apart. So I've decided that this episode is about refrigeration in the sense of refrigerating foods. mm mm-hmm. And the next episode is about refrigeration in the sense of refrigerating people. (laughs) Um, So it's air conditioning, but also, you know, cryogenics. Mm. Because you're like, what is cryogenics? Is it like a fridge for people? Or is it a very small office building? No one knows. (laughs) Um, So, you know, my innovative metaphysics solves of this. (laughs) So these are the first two episodes. And then there's going to be one on sunbathing. Mm. wink. Wink. If you're in the UK during the COVID pandemic, wink, wink, sunbathing. Or if you're listening from the future and you have forgotten about all this dispute about who sits on the grass and who doesn't, good for you.
1: (laughs) Cool. So basically, I say cool quite a lot in my my day-to-day life. And that's going to come across as if I'm trying to make a pun throughout this whole, Mm. basically the first two episodes of our (laughs) spring-summer collection. So I want to just state for the record now... That's not an intentional pun, okay. Um, but I did do a little bit of research as to what sort of puns I could make intentionally, and I I went to the 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 source, kind of the motherlode, if you will, of of ice puns, which are of course said by the character Mister Freeze, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, in the 1997 film Batman and Robin. <laughs> um, so uh, I've got a selection here, which I can try some out on you now. Yeah. I think just m- more than anything, just to kind of get it out of my system. Yeah. And then maybe I'll pepper some in throughout if we need, uh, you know, if we need to pick it up at all. Yeah. If, if people need to just you know roll around on the floor laughing at I mean, the high quality puns featured in this film.
0: Just in case the history of ice is a bit dry. Uh, like dry ice. That's good. I like that's it. terrible. Can't no,
1: carry I know. Compared to these, it's good. <laughs> so these are all actual puns which featured in the film. Batman <laughs> and Robin starring George Clooney as Batman. Are
0: we serious? Yeah. Amazing. Chris
1: O'Donnell as the only role Chris O'Donnell's ever known for. <laughs> and Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm going to attempt to deliver these as they were delivered in the film. Mm-hmm. The Iceman cometh. I mean, that's a fairly Yeah. That's a fairly low hanging fruit for, for ice puns, isn't it? Yeah. I'm afraid that my condition has left me cold to your pleas of mercy.
0: Ah I see, yeah.
1: It's quite I mean there's a lot of words in there to work that pun through, I think. This one's appropriate for a science podcast. In this I I can't do I can't do the accent.
0: It's don't one do, of the easiest accents. accents
1: to do, but I. Don't do accents. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in this universe, there's only one absolute. Everything freezes.
0: Uh, I thought he would go for like one absolute. Zero! Or yeah. Like... Mm.
1: It's just. You're not sending me to the cooler.
0: I don't understand oh, that's
1: that. That's a jail.
0: Jail. Like, oh, wait. sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm foreign.
1: Sending... <laughs> <laughs> what killed the dinosaurs? The Ice Age. And then presumably he kind of fires an ice cannon at Batman ah, or see. something. Yeah. But I mean, Batman's not a dinosaur, so I don't see how it's relevant in this. No. In this. So, I mean, what, those are there, just so you know. Yeah. It's so you feel relaxed to know that that level of punning yeah. is available.
0: That's that's very comforting to me. Also, this is going to make us sound incredibly funny.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> right. Shall we get on with the
0: episode? <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about refrigeration. Refrigeration is ancient. Mountains have been doing it for millions of years. (laughs) Then we arrived on the scene. And some 4,000 years ago, we decided we wanted a piece of the action, didn't we? So we started to try and find ways to control temperature. The most ancient way of doing this was by literally bringing ice down from where it naturally occurred. So just get a big chunk of ice from the mountains and trying to keep it in a mostly non-melted state for as long as possible.
1: Mm-hmm. So and presumably this time, the worst thing you could say to someone is, oh, have you got any ice? Oh, all right. <laughs> and like three months later, they come back down the mountain.
0: That's very high maintenance neighbours there. Yeah. <laughs> so... This is what ice houses were for. So instead of going to your neighbour, you could just go to the ice house. Uh, So communities used to have a shared ice house um, in in various places. And these were either massive holes in the ground, covered with various materials, or heavily insulated buildings, or both. The first known ice house had been built in Mesopotamia around 1700 BC, near the river Euphrates. We only have written records of this, which say that the king of Mari, Zimri Lim, had ordered its construction. We also know that ice was harvested in China at around 1000 BC. So a completely different place, but the practice existed and it was brought to ice pits. Apparently the filling and emptying or, of ice cellars were occasions for celebration. And there was like a religious mm-hmm. aspect to this. Are there people who put ice in holes to keep it cold? Hebrews? Hebrews? Ancient Greeks, Romans, oh, hey, keeping ice in the down uh, in the ground was the cool thing to do in a uh, thousand BC.
1: So let's carry on with the episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only kidding! I loved it. I did.
0: The first proper ice-keeping building, which was also an ice-making building. And that we have still examples of is a Persian design, and it dates back to 400 BC. They are called yakhchals, and they are basically conical buildings with a storage room underground as well. So they work through evaporation; water evaporates and keep things cool inside so when water evaporates that's what it does like, so the, okay. wa-
1: the water is absorbing the heat energy of whatever is below it and evaporating away
0: exactly so the, the sort of overground part of the building was made with a mixture of sand clay egg whites lime goat hair and ash uh, because it had insulating properties and was also waterproof huh. so it's an excellent material They could be used to store foodstuffs, but mostly they were just used to store ice. So the ice would either be brought down from the mountains, as before, or it was made in this part of the yakshal, which was uh, like a um, separate chamber um, on the side of the yakshal where it would be more shady in winter. So that they would put water there, let it evaporate, ice would form, and then it would be brought inside in the storage room.
1: So they were keeping this, they were making ice in the winter and they were keeping it all through into the summer.
0: Yeah, yes. I mean, the melting. So some, some physicists have actually calculated the melting rate of this. There uh-huh. are some, the numbers are a bit here and there, but in summer, I think it was like 20% of it was still there. Like, okay, but that's yeah, still impressive. There's still quite a lot, yeah, by the end of summer. So mm. at that point, they were starting to make it again, right? Yeah. And we'll see how ice was actually made in summer as well in other places. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, fun thing about the Persians. So they are believed to be the first people to actually preserve food with ice in summer. And not only did they preserve it, because while you have all these ice, might as well have a bit of fun with it. They used to make cold treats um, oh. like sorbet and falude, who which is still eaten today. It's um, it's dessert that I've never had, but I want to because <laughs> it looks lovely. It's made of frozen rice noodles fa- flavoured with rose water and lime.
1: Wow, that sounds great. And
0: it sounds delicious.
1: Unusual to my palate. <laughs> uh, like, I don't know, the idea of eating frozen rice noodles is unusual to me, but the flavours sound fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it looks
0: like a bit like granita in a certain uh, sense. Okay. So it's like just the shape is slightly different. It's kind of mm. starch. It's like frozen starch or something okay. like that. Huh. And also, they look so pretty as well. I like that for amazing so yeah so as I said each town would have a few Yakshals to share and some of them were massive like the biggest surviving one is 18 metres tall wow so imagine this 18 metres tall cone essentially it's just it's quite impressive it's like theme. so that's
1: like just slightly shorter than the width of a swimming pool that's really tall
0: it's really tall yeah or you know a six floor building after antiquity, there is somewhat of a lull in historical interests around this because not much else happened. Like, in the 18th century, people were still getting ice from mountains, but the interesting part is how. So that's, that's what changed, really, right? Up until then, it was more like a local kind of domestic ende- uh, endeavour. So in England, for instance, servants would go themselves to collect ice and put it in ice houses, there were underground spaces where the ice would be packed with salt, covered with a flannel, and put away for summer. So the method was actually less advanced than Yacht-Charles. <laughs> ja, and then you know what happened?
1: Uh, I mean, eventually they made Batman and Robin.
0: Yeah, and you know who made Batman and Robin?
1: Uh, Joel well, Schumacher.
0: Americans. True. Americans happened. So they went... I'm not going to do an American accent. I'm <laughs> not going to do that.
1: <laughs> Especially because I've heard your American accent and I, it's,
0: it's offensive. <laughs> 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 so, ice harvesting in America became big business. The story goes that it started because Thomas Jefferson needed to have cold drinks. <laughs> so he couldn't keep ice in his ice house because it kept melting. So he probably had a really bad ice house. He tried insulating it with snow, but that didn't work. So he had some ice harvested from the Ravana River, which was nearby where he was living. And that sort of put things in motion. So ice festivals started to happen where... In New England, people would just go to rivers and ponds and and lakes in winter with tools, chip ice off, you know, where it was naturally occurring, and then sell it. So it started a bit haphazardly until Frederick Tudor, a.k.a. the Ice King, (laughs) came to the scene... So in 1806, the Ice King, that's that's what I'm calling him now, Mm. (laughs) he's lost his name, got the idea of exporting ice. So he would load ships with ice harvested in New England and sell it as far away as Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, Sydney, Australia and India. So the Indian case is quite an interesting one because Indians actually had as much ice as they wanted in their backyard because India is where the Himalayas are. <laughs> and in fact, the Himalayas had been the Indian fridge freezer for centuries. Kofi, which I have had. And,
1: <laughs> and you a, love.
0: And I love. It's another delicious um, cold dessert that is served on a stick. And it's kind of creamy and fruity and lovely. And it had been made since the 16th century. It was made on the Himalayas and then brought down to be enjoyed as dessert, you know. In fact, the way it was insulated from transport was the reason why it got its creamy texture because the insulation prevented ice crystals from forming. Mm -hmm. So it kept creamy. So, yeah, so they they had ice, right? But guess who didn't like Himalayan ice? The Brits. Brits didn't like Himalayan ice because they were like, it's it's dirty. And it's a lot of work bringing Mm. it down from the Himalayas and stuff. You know, why doing all this when we already have these American fellas that can bring it over in a convenient ship. (laughs) And so that's what they did. Actually, the Ice King's agent on his very first trip had managed to secure very advantageous terms for ice commerce. Ice ships didn't have to wait for customs to do all the usual checks. They could just bring directly to warehouses from the harbour. They had permission to unload ice at night. Uh, normally, you wouldn't be able to unload anything at night, and in Bombay, they had a dedicated docking area, and also ice was duty free. Plus, what was in it for the Americans was that when ships had unloaded the ice, they loaded up on colonial delicacies and brought them back to America to sell mm-hmm. back. Right, so it was it was a wonderful deal for for Brits and Americans. Plus, people loved going to look at the ice being unloaded.
1: Which I can get. I understand that. I think that would be quite satisfying, seeing a big old block of ice coming off a ship.
0: Yeah, it sounds great. And some of them would go and touch the ice because, (laughs) you know, some of these people had never seen that much ice. Mm. And some of them thought that they had been burnt. Um, Okay, yeah. Which, to be fair, is not too far away from what actually happens when you touch Mm -hmm. ice, right? Like, your nerve endings just go berserk. So, yeah, so... Over time, this became more of a structured commerce. So, Ice in Mumbai and Kolkata were financed with taxes. And piggybacking on the ice trade, American apples and butter and Spanish grapes were also sold there. So... It became a proper, well-structured system, right? In America, ice became a domestic staple, and so did the ice man. There's lots of really fun <laughs> characters in this story. I'm um, just picturing like a cartoony man with a block of ice coming <laughs> to your house, uh, and then you put it into an ice box. Um,
1: and he's got a good, a good white cap. Yes, he's got a white cap.
0: Yeah, and he's quite jolly. Mm. Yeah. Mm and you know by the 1880s most houses had ice boxes which were these pieces of furniture that all they did was keep ice and iceman kept working well into the 20th century up until the 50s some american households would still have house delivered that way now this seems like a wonderful thing for everyone involved but was it What's your guess
1: um I'm going to say no.
0: Correct. (laughs) It was not good for everyone involved. Harvesting ice was grueling work. It was all done by hand with sharp tools like saws and hooks and obviously at freezing temperature, right? So you would have these blocks that weighed between 100 and 200 kilograms sliding around in these conditions. People's hands were insensitive and stiff from the cold So, you know, people would just break limbs very easily. People would drown in rivers and horses as well. And after all that, only one-tenth of the ice was actually loaded on the ships. In the 1820s, Frederick Tudor, the ice king, um, (laughs) helped by a collaborator, created a new method of harvesting ice, which consisted in ploughing ice fields. Oh. So, think of a plough, like yeah. agricultural plough with horses, and it would just be dragged along the ice field, scraping ice off this big slab wow. of ice. Which was less dangerous because there were no sharp tools involved and no holes, but still.
1: It's like a giant Mr. Frosty. You know the Mr. Frosty thing where you put, you, you put ice cubes in the top of... Okay, Mr. Frosty. Right. <laughs> Classic christmas presents of the 80s yeah. 90s possibly revived in the noughties put ice it's a, like a snow and plastic snowman and you put ice cubes in his head and put his hat back on and then on his back he's got a, a crank basically which grinds up the ice into like a granita like a sort of um yeah slush puppy type thing and then you add flavoring they don't work Despite the fact that they were like crazy popular, they don't work. <laughs> uh, but it's basically like it's like ice shavings, yeah. that sort of thing. So it's basically a giant Mister Frosty,
0: but not That's, as cute.
1: Not as, nowhere near as cute.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Another problem with ice um, harvests was that you could have bad harvests and good harvests. So if you had a slightly warmer winter, you wouldn't have enough ice to cover the demand. So there were ice famines. Two ice famines are recorded in the 1800s, but demand was always there because at that point it had become fashionable to have ice in your drinks, right? So you had to keep the supply up. And what used to happen was that men would be sent off to the Arctic to pick ice off icebergs. And this is part of the reason why mechanical refrigeration became successful, because people wanted ice and people needed a better way to obtain it than ice harvests, right? Plus, okay, this is going to be incredibly misogynistic, but there you go. There was a rumour in the industry that during the war, housewives left behind by their army husbands would get a bit like (laughs) <laughs> too friendly we'll get the hots for the ice men. <laughs> and so apparently men were quite keen to get rid of the ice men
1: <laughs> so wow.
0: part of me wants to tell this poor innocent 1950s suburban husbands about plumbers and <laughs> pizza delivery man with extra salami <laughs> Uh, And all sorts of other things that have been invented to cover the same needs later on, mostly in adult movies. Mm.
1: Mm. I mean, if any adult movie makers are listening and they need a plot for their eighteen hundred set porn film, then um, we will be charging for the royalties on that.
0: For a fresh take on this. (laughs) Man, I'm making all the stupid puns now. What's up?
1: I think I got them all out of my system at the beginning.
0: <laughs> Let's talk about making ice. How do you make ice?
1: I I, I fill up the ice tray, yes, uh, the plastic ice tray, and I, it's got a lid because it's quite a good ice tray. Yeah, And then I put it in the freezer and then I wait. And then I open the freezer like an hour and a half later and it's not done and I'm disappointed. huh. And then I close the freezer and then I check. And then I don't have a gin and tonic that evening.
0: Well, funny you should mention that. Because that's pretty much what Indian and Egyptian people were doing around 500 BC. Oh. I mean, not quite. But they could actually make their own ice using shallow pots, so a bit like your ice tree, I mm-hmm. suppose. Uh, they were made of clay. They, were, they would put them out on cool nights, filled with water. And then, you know, the water at the top would evaporate and ice would form at the bottom. And so you would just find ice in the morning.
1: That's nice. That's delightful.
0: Um, And then put them in, you know, the ice houses that we were talking about. In fact, they would make quite a lot of ice that way. Hmm. Uh, If you think about the ice that Brits didn't like in India, that's pretty much how it was made. So that was the principle. But yeah, as we said, Brits were not into it. But in more recent times, Westerners started to try and build machines that would create artificial cold as we know this happened in very different contexts for very different reasons and it's reflected on all the names that pop up like it's unclear who invented mechanical refrigeration really as with pretty much every invention in the history of humankind may add and that's fine it's just how things happen so you could you could say that the first refrigerating machine was made by a Scottish scientist called William Cullen in 1756. So it was presented in 1756. He used uh, ether, which was a common lab solvent at the time. He made a pump that basically lowered the boiling point of the ether, so the ether boiled, absorbing heat from the surroundings. And it actually made a little bit of ice as well. It was a rather unimpressive amount. (laughs) But yeah, if you put it in touch with uh, water, it could make a little bit of ice. I don't know. At this point, it seems a bit grand to call it the first refrigerating machine. Like, like, at this point, let's just credit the Egyptians because... Yeah. Yeah. Also, no one followed up on this. They just went, oh, cool.
1: Okay. Uh Uh See what I did there?
0: Sorry. So, other scientists experimented with different liquids. In 1758, Benjamin Franklin uh, and John Hadley used alcohol to do something similar. In 1820, National Treasure Faraday um, (laughs) managed to liquefy ammonia, which was actually the first step um, into modern refrigeration. So, ammonia could be liquefied and then released as a gas, be liquefied again... Um And this is basically how refrigeration works nowadays as well. When a substance goes from liquid to gaseous, it takes heat from the environment and then it releases it. So that's kind of how refrigeration works. Um I have also found a reference to vinegar and wine being used as coolants. <laughs> I couldn't corroborate it. So I won't give it for certain, it just seems a bit absurd to me. But if someone knows how this happened... (laughs) If someone misunderstood
1: the term wine cooler.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so if anyone knows, just let us know.
1: Hey, shall we tell them how they can let us know?
0: Let's do that right now.
1: You can let us know. You could email us at hello at wondercupboard.com. You could also talk to us on Instagram or Twitter, which are both popular services. On Instagram, we are at Podcast. You can send us a message and look at our pretty pictures. On Twitter, you can send us a message at and also and look at our pretty text. And sometimes yeah. it's pictures.
0: Yeah. Sometimes we share news, we share fun facts, mm. we retweet people we like. Yeah. Um, so, yeah.
1: If you're into science communication and the study of science technology, as we are, then follow us on Twitter because we put all the stuff that we find that's interesting to us there so at wonder Cupboard on Twitter follow us it'll be delightful we'll all have a party while you're following us while you're clicking buttons on your computer or mobile device why <laughs> not subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or follow us on Spotify and uh, leave us a review because if you leave us a review it helps us get the message out about this podcast and more people will listen and then we can make more and that will be delightful so if you love this and why wouldn't you (laughs) subscribe to us on iTunes as Mr Freeze would say cool party okay I mean some of these are really the quotes are very context dependent I would say yeah let's carry on
0: (laughs) so we're talking about refrigerating machines being built they were also built outside of labs, which increases the amount of candidates for first refrigerating machine. So one such candidate is the one made by John gory who was a doctor. He had patients with yellow fever and wanted to cool them down to give them relief. So he created a machine that made ice and blew air over it, which, of course, is more kind of an air conditioning thing, but it's still quite an important step. Even though, again, entirely inconsequential. No one cared for it. He couldn't get funding for his invention. That was it. Basically, he invented in 1830, managed to patent it in 1851, and no one did anything with it. Another name that pops up a lot is American businessman Alexander Twinning, who is said to have started commercial refrigeration in 1856. Yet another first guy to make refrigeration machines, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be
1: a bit like the oldest pub in London, of which there's about seven. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
0: Um, So, yeah, So the the last one is Carl von Linde, who worked for a brewery. uh, The Spaten Brewery in Munich, um, which still exists, makes okay beer. Um,
1: (laughs) Eleanor's beer reviews.
0: Oh, there will be Eleanor's beer reviews. <laughs> now we're, we're talking about lager beer, right? Mm. Uh, so it's kind of the cold fizzy kind. The, you know, you're like fizzy water, but with who, which has looked at hops at some time in the in, in the past. It's like it's homeopathic <laughs> beer,
1: basically.
0: <laughs> so it needs to be processed in a cold environment. Mm. Hence, at the time, it could only be made in places that were naturally cold such as Germany and Northern Europe and only during the cold months between October and April so having an artificial cooling system would extend production and in fact it did in 1873 von Linde created a machine using ether as a coolant and bam you can have shit beer any time of the year (laughs) that's a
1: great slogan yeah I'm surprised they didn't go with that (laughs) probably doesn't work as well in German
0: (laughs) I mean, let's face it. Real beer.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. okay. We're, we're undergoing the process of beer <laughs> review.
0: No, because, yeah, okay. I am a bit annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> because on some of these accounts about von Linde, which there are many, they're like, oh, well, only after mechanical refrigeration due to this German guy, then anyone could make beer everywhere. I got news for you, <laughs> dudes. Beer was invented in Mesopotamia. It's hot in Mesopotamia. And then you know where it spread first? In Egypt. It's hot in Egypt. <laughs> I mean, of course, it was different beer. It wasn't It was lager. It was actually quite thick and gooey, the way beer is supposed to be. <laughs> and served at room temperature, the way beer is supposed to be served. <laughs> okay now i'm getting a bit but no but fun fact that i discovered while uh angrily googling
1: (laughs) and drinking a beer probably
0: yeah Yeah. yeah. um in moderation in moderation moderation, let's face it yeah
1: please drink responsibly
0: yeah so don't drink lager um so the straw apparently was invented in mesopotamia in order to drink this kind of (laughs) fake beer
1: wow that's a fun fact it is fun
0: yeah Hmm. So, yeah. So, you know, English ale is not cold. It was made in medieval England by women who would make it for everybody. It was drunk instead of water, right? So my point being that the reason why mechanical refrigeration became so important was that brewing beer at that point was a commercial enterprise. So you had to store it somewhere, and so on and so forth. In fact, Lager means storage in, in German, right? So, yeah. So it was a revolutionary invention because there was an industry there to welcome the invention in its fold, right? This podcast is not sponsored by camera and carry on. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's got, we've got one more guy who's credited for having introduced specifically vapour compression refrigeration, to the brewing and meat packing industries. This guy was Australian, though. His name was James Harrison. And that was slightly before Von Linde. So, you know, you know things happen in parallel. It's fine. Mm. Who cares? One thing that people seem to agree on is that the machine that most resembles modern refrigerators was designed by Ferdinand Carré in france in 1859 so this is the missing link of refrigeration if you wish right from all the world the refrigeration and now we're refrigeration except it's not missing because we know
1: yeah we found it
0: we found it so it was a compression refrigerator like the ones we use today and used ammonia as a coolant so this being the 19th century refrigeration became entertainment
1: (laughs) yeah fantastic
0: so you know how people were excited to touch the ice hmm. of coming here? So imagine that, but Victorian scale.
1: Fantastic. <laughs> Queuing around the block. Or no, probably in a theatre. Madam, uh, gentlemen, who cares to come up and try the coldest box?
0: <laughs> it's pretty much what happened. Yes, I love it.
1: <laughs> so, oh... Uh. <laughs>
0: So, initially, it was more of a niche thing. So, in the, um, between the 1860s and 1880s, uh, ice machines were presented at two universal exhibitions in Paris. So, the second one, just to give you an idea, is the one that they built the Touré fell for. So, that's the oh, kind okay, of right. scale that we're mm. doing this at, right? Uh, so, that's in 1889. The thing is, they were mostly making, making bigger and bigger bits of ice, in different shapes. At some point, a man called Raúl Pictet demonstrated the liquefaction of oxygen there, which is something that I would pay to see. So, you know. And Maybe then. You would. I mean, who wouldn't? <laughs> <laughs> right? Sure. That's, that's what people bring children, mm. is it? I mean, aside, one of the fondest memories I have of my childhood was going to this um science fair in Turin, my hometown called Experimenta,
1: uh-huh.
0: where you could go and there was a a machine that would do a big centrifuge uh-huh. and then you could stand in the machine and you and you would like get stuck to the sides of the machine okay, because of yeah. the centrifugal force and then they lowered the floor ah. and you stood you know you were still stuck there. I mean, I didn't get in the machine because no. I was scared of the cat, but I loved looking at people getting stuck to the walls. <laughs> I mean, come on!
1: Yeah. A good scientist maintains distance between themselves and their subjects.
0: Indeed, I was, mm. I was taking notes. Yes. I was taking notes, and the notes were very cool.
1: Spinning. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um. So Pictet did have some success after liquefying oxygen in public. Um, He was asked to build a cold pavilion at the Swiss National Exhibition, which happened in Geneva in 1896. So the cold pavilion, right? Mm -hmm. It had an amphitheater for demonstrations and talks, a bar that served ice drinks with ice made on the premises. It was air-conditioned. And offered something called frigotherapy.
1: <laughs>
0: Unclear what that was. Mm-hmm. Probably they just stuck you somewhere cold and yeah. saw what happened. Mm. I mean, that's kind of 19th kind century of medicine.
1: Chipped you out of an ice block at the end. You feeling better? <laughs> yeah.
0: People were interviewed after getting in the frigotherapy section. <laughs> Some of them reported feeling hyperactive. Um And Pictet thought it could even be useful for the treatment of tuberculosis.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, great.
0: Good luck with that one. TBC. Uh Aha! So, in financial terms, the pavilion was a disaster. Like, the electric bill was astronomical. (laughs) (laughs) But people enjoyed it. And it was one of the first instances in which science, in the making, was actually interesting to... The public, Mm -hmm. right? So before that, oftentimes scientific demonstrations would be made at the Royal Society or for, you know, people in the know. Well, there you could just buy a ticket. I mean, you need to be able to afford a ticket, but you could go and see this happen. So that's quite fun. And this kind of carried on for a while. So uh, cold used as a funky addition to exhibitions. In 1937, in Paris, the Palais du Frois was, uh, was built, That means uh, cold palace. Mm. (laughs) It was designed by an architect called Maurice Fournier. Now, I'm going to quote a description of the place because it's amazing. Echoing the nearby Eiffel Tower, Tour Eiffel people, it's called Tour Eiffel, uh, he incorporated a 120-foot tall aluminium snow tower whose refrigerating system would produce ice while being lit at night. Its octagonal cross-section was divided into eight downward-pointing conical basings. Cooled through a solution of brined calcium chloride, they reached an, av- an average temperature of minus 10 to minus 20 uh, degrees Celsius, thus generating ice when air humidity made contact with the tower. The build-up of ice was then blown out into snow through ventilators.
1: Wow! That sounds great!
0: In darkness, four of the eight sides were lit up, thus affording the impression of a magical storm in the summer.
1: Wow. That's cool. That's
0: wonderful, yeah. right?
1: That's cool. So you did it. Yeah. I warned you. Oh, that man. wasn't a pun. Wonder cupboard.
0: Okay, so this is the point where I explain how a modern refrigerator works. So I apologise in advance. <laughs> <laughs> I hope this goes well. Um, Okay So basically you have a substance That can go from liquid To gas So You make it to become a gas And then back again to be in a liquid The substance Called the refrigerant Goes from one state to the other In a closed loop And it is called the Carnot cycle When the substance Becomes gaseous it takes heat from the environment, then releases it while becoming liquid. And then the cycle starts again, right? So you put the bit where the substance is turning to gas in contact with whatever you wish to refrigerate. You can have it against the box where you keep your food, for example. Or, you know, you can have massive coils around which ice forms and then you chip it off and bye-bye ice harvest. So the principle is the same. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Now... For domestic refrigerators, two ways have been devised to control this process. One is compression. You squeeze your gas into liquid, then let the liquid evaporate and so on. And you do this with something called a compressor. And this is how your refrigerator works at home. I can reliably say that anyone who listens to this, (laughs) that's how your refrigerator works. The other one, the other method, is absorption. So the refrigerant is heated, it evaporates, and is then absorbed into a liquid that is usually water. As it dissolves into water, it becomes liquid again and cools down. Pressure in the system changes automatically as this happens, and the cycle starts again. So this is how gas refrigerators used to work. I said used to work because who has heard of a gas refrigerator, Right. (laughs) And why do you think that is? Spoiler alert, got nothing to do with efficiency.
1: Is it because they kept exploding? Ish. It sounds explodey to me.
0: Well, fun fact, the explodey ones were the compression ones, actually. Oh, oh
1: good. Okay, great. Good.
0: So, these ones didn't explode. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not a superior design in itself. Mm-hmm. So, how did this happen? Okay, so... As we said, the compression refrigerators were exploding. They leaked a lot as well. And this was occasionally fatal. So in the 20s, a lot of people died from leaking compressors in in refrigerators. In fact, in 1926, a whole family in Berlin died from one of these leaks. And a, a notorious scientist read this on the paper, was very affected by the story... And tried to come up with a different design. Guess who that scientist was?
1: I mean, there's lots. The big one. The big one. Edison. Bigger. Tesla. Bigger. Einstein. Yeah. Einstein. <laughs> All right, fine.
0: So Einstein's, Einstein read this thing on the paper. I was like, this is not right. And so he he partnered with... His friend Leo Zilad, who was also a physicist, and they came up with a design that uh, didn't have any moving parts, so there was no leakage uh, to be had. It solved the problem beautifully. They tried to patent it forty-five different times in different versions, but it just—they never managed to patent this. Eventually, what happened was that the liquid itself that was used as a refrigerant changed. Um, so it used to be ammonia that was highly toxic and it was replaced by freon so at that point the problem that the leak um, constituted wasn't so bad anymore I mean nowadays we know that freon is actually quite bad for the environment because it's uh, CFC um, So it
1: degrades the ozone layer if yeah. it gets out into the atmosphere
0: Yeah, so who knows maybe we are overdue uh, revival of uh, Einstein's refrigerator But yeah, so. Einstein's
1: refrigerator instantly sounds like an Edinburgh play put on first by first year drama students.
0: (laughs) I would watch that. Another problem with compression refrigerators was that they were very expensive. In the States, they cost an average of $450 when the average income was $2,000 a year. Mm. They were noisy. In fact, they were so noisy that most of the time they were hidden in the basement. So they were they were so the first refrigerators were not didn't have the food compartment. They were just machines that you would somehow connect to your food compartment. So there were boxes that were separate. So you bought the mechanism and sent the refrigerating bit through piping to the food box. So absorption refrigerators just had none of these problems. Like they were cheap, they were fine, they didn't leak So what happened? What happened was that General Electric, which was a massive company, decided to make compression refrigerators because they already had some experience in doing that for big factories and for the industry. And also because in the 20s, they were not in very good uh, financial uh, waters. And so they decided to um, start making something that had massive appeal, and at the time electricity was starting to become more um, popular. In well, more popular, it was like people had electricity in their houses um, in the United States, and so that meant that there was a potential demand for electric refrigerators. So in 1927, they became the first company to sell the full package. There was a motor uh, and a refrigerator compartment, so you had everything in one noisy uh, (laughs) chunk of furniture designs improved steadily until world war ii at which point they were pretty much what we have today um basically this required enormous investment in development that not every company could afford so that's why general electric was so successful The ones who, the the companies who made absorption refrigerators, were much smaller, and just didn't have the same muscle Mm. as General Electric, right?
1: So it's almost uh, it's 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 very similar to a VHS versus Betamax situation. The Betamax was a superior video format; the VHS won out because it had wider adoption. There you go. It was pushed by bigger. Well, it was pushed by porn. Yeah. I don't think refrigerators were pushed by porn.
0: I mean, at this point, anything is possible. After the (laughs) Iceman thing. Who knows? (laughs) But yeah, it's it's basically the same thing. Mm. And also there's the fact that General Electric spent a lot of money in marketing. Mm. So the campaigns that they devised were actually quite amusing. So in one of them, they... Placed um, treasure chests, um, you know, like those allegedly coveted by pirates. <laughs> um, uh, they put them allegedly.
1: In the- Let's not make accusations.
0: Exactly. <laughs> I've, have you ever met a pirate? No. Just saying. Mm. I don't think they spoke the way they are purported to speak either. <laughs> Just saying. No. Man, I'm blowing the lid on a lot of things today. <laughs> <laughs> Um, So they would put these treasure chests in the windows of General Electric dealers, saying that it would be opened on March 22,
1: 1929.
0: Mm. Newspapers covered the event. There was a lot of... uh, There were expectations around this, right? So parties were organised for that day. Oh,
1: Wow, Okay.
0: The night before the opening, large keys were hung on doorknobs of residents around these shops. In some towns, the mayor attended the opening um, and finally was open to reveal the new all-steel refrigerator. Just <laughs> another refrigerator.
1: Yeah. But wow, what, what an amazing hype campaign. I mean, yeah. these things, these kind of marketing campaigns are, 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 are still popular today. Yeah. yeah.
0: And not only that, like after this grand opening, they had a tour with puppets. <laughs> I mean, this was the show.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Ed copy said it was the shortest short story ever produced. The plot is very unclear. So there was a wedding and then a housewife struggling with traditional chores. And then at the end, there was some machinery and the personification of freedom.
1: Oh, wow.
0: <laughs> so, so that was that.
1: Conceptual in the last uh, third of the plot there.
0: So, yeah, so this is, this is kind of how they became popular. Now, speaking of design issues, the door of early refrigerators was a big problem mm. because it had a handle outside, but they were not openable from the inside, which, you know, why would they? Like, who would climb into a fridge? Who would be small enough and dumb enough And play hide and seek often enough to climb into a fridge. Mm. You look like you know that. Yeah, I've heard about this. Yeah. So so yeah, so children died as a result of this. It was a real problem. There was the government intervened at some point in the US in 1956. The Refrigerator Safety Act was promulgating, stipulating that fridges had to be openable from inside. So that's why now most. Fridges have magnetic doors, right? One again, slightly disturbing thing, and that happened around this time was that they had to work out how to improve the design of refrigerators somehow. So scientists decided the best possible way to investigate the issue was sticking children in confined spaces. So I read this 1958 study were children aged between two and five. So, like, 1958 sounds like a long time ago, right? My dad could have been one of those children. Mm-hmm. My dad was four in 1958. So they were stuck in, and I quote, a specially designed enclosure, like, what? A cage. Not, cage. Or you could have used the fridge for that at that mm. point. Like, just not, please don't plug it in. And then the behavior was, was recorded. This is a quote from a study. An important result of the behaviour study was the finding that when entrapped, children most often try to escape either by pushing on the door through which they entered the enclosure or by manipulating a knob release as they would a doorknob. Relatively few children pushed against the back, sides or ceiling of the enclosure. Also known as the no shit conclusion.
1: (laughs) This is what happens when the people designing the safety for children haven't spent any time around children. Yeah, exactly. And they probably, most of them had children, but never spent any time raising them.
0: I don't think they knew the names of their children. Mm. Um, Another interesting insight was that children from low to middle income families were better at escaping. (laughs) Don't know what that means. That's, yeah, but there you go. Let's talk about the reception of refrigeration. Right, refrigeration of obviously made a huge impact on people's lives. Right, um, stuff doesn't go bad anymore. But you know, it's not just that. Um, with the advent of frozen products, the cold chain had to be established, because obviously, once you freeze food, normally at the point of harvest or catch in the case of fish, it has to stay frozen until it is extracted from a domestic freezer to be cooked. So this is a very long process, right, that entails a series of buildings, refrigerated means of transportation, best practices, networks of electricity, buildings of roads, international agreements, and so on and so forth. It's 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 a huge system. I mean, if you think back to the ice harvest, right, so the fact that the Ice King was, you know, friends with the Brits and had easy access to warehouses in Bombay was obviously because he was friends with the Brits and that's fine but also it had a practical purpose right it meant that ice could be isolated at all times so it wouldn't melt um, so things went differently in different places I'm going to give a few examples each of them with different level of enthusiasm towards uh, refrigeration okay. in different geographical areas so let's start with the obvious one which is the states well, you know, Americans love frozen food. That's they are still the biggest consumer of consumers of frozen food, always have been. And they have been since Clarence Birdseye, uh-huh. allegedly taking inspiration from the way Eskimo's froze fish founded Birdseye Seafood Inc. in nineteen twenty-four. So there's a legend about Captain himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, How
1: long was it before he even discovered breadcrumb technology? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, yeah, so there was a, ma- like, fun fact, there was a massive dip in 1947. Okay. So 87-, 87% down in frozen food sales, because apparently people realised that f- frozen food was shit. <laughs> um, because the market had been flooded with poor quality ready meals. Right, okay. And then, you know, they did research and they improved. And now, as we all know, frozen ready meals are delicious and served in S- restaurants.
1: Some of the best food that that, that anyone could buy.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> of course, it also meant that dairy and meat were cheaper. Uh, they could be consumed in larger quantities. And that is apparent. That's been calculated to be 5% of the reason why Americans became slightly taller.
1: <laughs> um, Interesting.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, so Americans are tall. Okay, so let's start with uh, what I have called early begrudging adopters. Okay. And this was in Nazi Germany. Uh-huh. So the German government started sponsoring research in freezing already during World War I. So that was before Nazi Germany, obviously. Then during the Nazi regime, research went further. It aligned with the government priority of improving the diet of the Germans and obtain food autarky, which means self sufficiency. That's something that fascist states tried to do because obviously they didn't have a lot of friends around. Mm. Italians did it as well. Fun fact the one pot meal was invented at this time. I mean, people had been cooking one pot meals before, but the concept of the one pot meal as a good thing to do um, was invented at this time. There were like marketing campaigns about it. So, whenever you cook one of those lovely recipes you got off the internet for one foot meals, you're making Hitler proud.
1: <laughs> Are you going on the rec- You're going on the record, that. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> um, in
0: 1938, Hermann Goering personally started working on establishing a German freezing industry with an old like war pal of his who used to be a pilot. Mm. Plus, Freezing helped with the exploitation of surplus fish produced in Norway. So Germany had invaded Norway in 1940. And one of the first things they did was introduce freezing to the fisheries because protein was necessary to build the German Empire because you wanted strong Aryan labs. Mm. And fish was an excellent source. And this was a very cheap way of obtaining it. So the problem was Germans just... Just didn't care for it. They just didn't like frozen food. The government did. Um, and also like business was interested in selling more of it because a lot of investment had been made in frozen technology up until that point. So they had to pay off some somehow, right? So a national campaign uh, was devised for this as well. The food ministry did it in the well-established style of general educational campaigns aimed at women because women were destined to become mothers and housewives and had to learn how to raise healthy children and take care of their husbands, allegedly. Mm-hmm. So cooking was allegedly their job. <laughs> so there were articles published on newspapers and magazines, brochures. The Pocketbook of Freezing was published in 1940. And even a film was produced called Blessing from the Cold. Mm. <laughs> I actually looked for it on the internet to see whether there were like snippets on YouTube and um, I could I couldn't find anything. But it sounds like a riveting watch. <laughs> so after the war, obviously uh Germany lost, it was split into West Germany continued this tradition, so West Germany was the one that was more aligned with um the United States and um Europe and, and so on and so forth, right? One of the first things they did, I don't want to say anything stereotypical, but let me remind you that they were German. Uh, They put together an international Transfriger route. So, basically one of the first big, probably the first big cold chain in Mm. the world. 140 companies were involved, and 350 special trucks were made to wheel food around Europe. And this was a German enterprise. Mm -hmm. Right. In the 50s and 60s, then West Germany imported visions of the future from the US. So frozen food was part of a lifestyle where everything in the house was automated and streamlined, and the housewife was just merrily going around pushing buttons. So frozen food had this kind of efficiency aftertaste, right? This yum, yum, yum. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's pre-prepared, you just take it out and heat it up, or later on you stick it in a microwave. In fact, part of the Marshall Plan funds had been destined under the push of Americans to realise this kind of domestic future. German nutritionists went on field trips to the rest of Europe and the US. An information service was created as part of the Ministry of Agriculture. And in 1952, the Americans had a Federal Research Institute for Home Economics created in Germany. So the message was again directed at women but it kind of shifted uh and went like you know if you can automate household work then you have more time for uh, things such as working outside the house and participating in public life still your husbands don't have to even push buttons Mm -hmm, but you mm -hmm. know life
1: and if you're lucky we might invent whole new classes of housework for you to do (laughs) and when you finish that crafts (laughs)
0: so Germans just even then Germans were just like nah even shopkeepers just
1: oh, so after all this work they were nah. still like oh,
0: it's, it's, it's not for us. Us. yeah <laughs> like, even shopkeepers just wouldn't keep freezers so even if you wanted frozen food there was nowhere to buy it you know there were like information materials sent to shopkeepers free freezers were given to shopkeepers representatives of wholesalers would go personally to these you know new shops that were uh, modelled on American stores so like with with lots of things in the same shop instead of having separate shops for different items uh, and just go look you you can have this freezer thing but also you know freezers were very difficult to keep like at some point those shops who did buy into this whole thing had to hire one person just to look at the freezers like I've seen cartoons like okay cartoons that um, appear in newspapers are a great source of information on how technologies are received. Okay. Um, Because people make fun of technologies that malfunction or of, you know, themselves not being able to work with them. Mm. So, some strips from this time show like freezers overflowing with ice and <laughs> with just like food stuck in it uh, and people not be able to retrieve the food from the freezer and stuff like that i saw one where with a housewife that was very confused because it was difficult for people to separate chilled foods from frozen foods like it's if you think about it, it's just different temperatures. If mm. you're not used to it, it's like, oh, where do I put this? Where put this yeah. in the freezer? And room?
1: nowadays we have standardized packaging symbols to to say, look, this has got to go in the freezer.
0: Yeah, and you know, and we've got a whole different section of the shop that is frozen, and we're kind of used to it, right? And we're all fairly well informed about the cold chain and all that. So yeah, so it was it was just a nightmare. Oh, one last thing was that in the sixties there were also demonstrations on how to use frozen foods. So, and this happened in America as well. So, there would be this lady, kind of enthusiastic lady, showing a bunch of housewives how to to cook them. Mm. You know, because also the question is like, well, are they cooked? Are they raw? Mm-hmm. Who knows? See, so, yeah, I mean, eventually they adopted it. Like Germans are now fairly uh, good consumers of um of frozen foods. Okay, next up happy early adopters okay (laughs) Norway oh okay so despite the fact that it started pretty traumatically with uh you know a nazi invasion that's as bad as it as it gets freezing technology took off very quickly so Norwegian fisheries went from salting fish to selling it to freezing plants so the transition was really smooth. Freezers appeared in shops, um, first in fishmongers and then in the general stores that, you know, were modelled after American ones. And this helped popularising frozen goods in Norway. Norway also had a state research institute of um, home economics, which was part of a nutritional slash medical campaign aimed at modernising the diet of Norwegians. So basically it was a healthcare initiative and in fact their campaigns would emphasise that frozen foods are nutritionally better than chilled food and this is because vitamins and minerals are preserved in the freezing process. Um, vegetables are frozen immediately after picking, while chilled vegetables are eaten a few days later. And this is long enough for a lot of the vitamin content to be gone. Like vitamin C goes down by 80% between the moment where you pick vitamin C-rich vegetables to the moment where you eat it. And they knew that. But also, the reason why refrigeration and freezing... Worked in Norway was because it plugged into an existing culture self-sufficiency appealed to the Norwegians they like to go for it for berries themselves for their own um, domestic uh, needs they like to grow their own food and go fishing in fact this became known as the kitchen garden movement which lasted uh, well into the 50s then we got late adopters ok greece right so in greece fish was also the first thing to be frozen so the first fishing boat with freezing machinery left for the atlantic in 1952 so much later than anywhere else uh that we have considered so far it was called the eurydice that's very nice Mm -hmm. um, mythological name there were campaigns to push greeks to eat frozen food as well and they were also mostly based on nutritional values, um, because it was a cheap way to get protein, and so it was all this very kind of sciency campaign. So it wasn't; it, it was still aimed at housewives, but there would be like scientists, obviously men, because obviously, obviously. M- women can't read. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And um, so there would be these, you know, scientists uh, going, this is good for you because protein, but in Greek. (laughs) And also there was sort of a fashion thing was like, you know, Northern European countries and Americans are eating this and they're very modern. And so that's what you should do. But the problem was that refrigerators were imported. So they were very expensive and remained a luxury item until the fifties. Then Greece started making its own refrigerators, the um, first company to make Greek refrigerators was called uh, Idola and one of the first challenges they had was trying to convince the Greeks that refrigerators were useful in winter because people were like I can just put stuff out of the window (laughs) and let me tell you my dad still does that (laughs) he's not Greek but he wasn't born very far from Greece it's just like neither do I Um, so one of the satirical strips that I was uh, talking about was about the fact that uh, fridges should be cheaper in winter, and that the Greeks had gone beyond seasonality in food, and they had got to seasonality in machinery as well. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> so yes, it was it was quite an interesting one. Um, there was also a fear that refrigeration would take people away from local foods because at this point you could have foods imported from far away, right? A commentator at the time called it a satanic invention Wow! because of this. And in fact the
1: Hell's was- frozen over.
0: Aha! <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so in fact there was no cold chain in Greece until it joined the um, European Economic Area because there was no need to import anything. They were pretty much just eating local foods. So this was Greece, and this is the end of our brief rundown <laughs> of uh, reception because obviously it changed a lot, but you can see how there was a different range of, of reactions. One last thing I would like to talk about is the frozen meat trade because it's one of the biggest consequences of freezing becoming widespread. By all means, not the only industry to benefit from freezing, of course. I found this list from... It's an excerpt from Ice and Cold Storage uh, magazine <laughs> uh, from the 1st of July, 19, um, sorry, 1898. So this is wow. very
1: early on. This is a, a, a long-running publication.
0: Yes. And there was already a trade magazine about it. If you think about it, that means that, you know, the yeah. industry was flourishing. Okay, so he said refrigerating machines of various kinds are now extensively used for preserving all kinds of daily produce for brewery purposes fruit importation bacon curing india rubber manufacture natural ice skating rinks preserving fish poultry and game chocolate cooling gum powder works do about this one <laughs> smokeless powder factories Private mansions, hotels, and asylums, and last but by no means least, on mercantile ships of all nations and men of war of our own and other powers.
1: Mm.
0: Powers with a capital P. Oh, fancy powers. <laughs> See, let's just briefly talk about the meat trade because it was particularly interesting. So, already in the eighteen seventies, Londoners would eat American meat, even though meat was produced in Britain. There mm. was no practical need for that the reason was that it was actually cheaper okay um so it was cheaper to pack meat and bring it over to the atlantic than to get local meat um, so even
1: 150 years ago we weren't self-sufficient the way that <laughs> the brexiteers seem to think that we can be
0: <laughs> well but we'll make friends with trump my love oh yes,
1: yes yeah of course. we're friends with him yes we have he- the same
0: hairdresser. <laughs>
1: And he had Trump Steaks, one of his many failed businesses.
0: I, I don't know about. Trump oh,
1: Trump Steaks was, was 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 a business, you know, owned and, and run by Trump, selling steaks. <laughs> Obviously, the biggest, bestest steak cysts, yeah. in, in the world. But uh, like so many of his ventures, it's uh, it's no longer with us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so yeah, so you know, very old industry. With time, frozen lamb was also imported to Britain. It is worth noting they took some time for the Brits to appreciate Australian and New Zealand lamb, which was the one that was imported, because initially they didn't like the taste. Mm. But somehow it improved.
1: It was probably good, (laughs) 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 knowing Brits.
0: (laughs) Um, Do you have this in blonde as well? (laughs) yeah so it was important from these areas and in particular in New Zealand large areas of land were reconverted to intensive farming for dairy and meat so this meant that the welfare and income of New Zealanders went up really quickly problem being that when we talk about New Zealanders we're talking about settlers from Europe well descendants of at this point of settlers from Europe so a lot of the land that was taken for, um, for, the, um, for this um, farming, the kind of farming, used to belong to the Maori. So the people who were there all along.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And this is how some of them lost their land rights. There are many different ways in which Maoris um, lost their land rights in New Zealand, but this was a major contributor So I think it's quite interesting to see how something so innocent, right, like refrigeration and freezing, and that we think about only in terms of our domestic life actually has repercussions everywhere. You know, there's Mm. infrastructure, there's there's all sorts Mm. of things. So, yeah, so this was the story of that process. Amazing. Then shall we chip away at the references?
1: Cool idea, Eleanor.
0: I'm so sorry. And now, the references. So, as usual, the full list will be on the website, but I've got special mentions. So the first one is an article by Ruth Schwartz-Cohen called How the Refrigerator Got Its Hum. The reason why I want to mention it is, apart from the fact that it's the source for some of the stories, like the General Electric story and so forth, It's because this is a classic text in STS, so science and technology studies, which is pretty much what this podcast is about, right? And you must read it. Like, it's such an amazing analysis of a technology. So you take a specific technology and you put it in a human context, in a social context, to see what that means and how that came about and what consequences it had. So this is just one of those articles that people in STS read as a formative... um, as a formative breed. Then I also found an edited volume called History of Artificial Cold Scientific, Technological and Cultural Issues edited by Costas Gavroglu and published uh, by Springer. There's a few different essays on different aspects of, of, uh, of this but I got the information for the bit on exhibitions from it. I got the story about Greece from it. There's quite a lot of of good stuff there finally if you're really into it and we have piqued your uh, interest there's a whole website dedicated to the history of refrigeration that is called www.historyofrefrigeration.com
1: <laughs> for all your history of refrigeration needs
0: I know right isn't it brilliant
1: <laughs> I'm going to bookmark it I'll uh, I'll dip back every week
0: there's pictures. There's See
1: what's there. been updated? Yeah. Sounds great. I, I love it. I actually love a single serving website like that. There's mm-hmm. just d- devoted to one topic, and there is no reason for it to exist. Like, it's not there to make money through ads, it's not there to promote any particular r- agenda. It is there as a little resource for anyone who should find it. I love that kind of website. Historyrefrigeration.com. <laughs> um visit it today
0: <laughs> do you want to mention ian's shoelace website
1: oh well yeah okay yeah i mean it's not refrigeration related but uh a- another website along those lines which is just dedicated to one particular topic which i love is ian's shoelace website just google ian's shoelaces it- it's not run by me there is no connection to me I do love it, though. Yeah. And what it is is a massive database of how to tie your shoelaces <laughs> and also how to lace your shoelaces. Um, it's actually really, really helpful. If you ever need to lace up a shoe or a boot or anything like that, go on there first. You must <laughs> because it gives you diagrams, step-by-step diagrams, interactive each uh, lacing method has its pros and cons listed. <laughs> like, if you've got laces which are too long, mm-hmm. Ian will suggest a lacing method which uses up more of the lace. Brilliant. It, it's, a, it's absolutely amazing. Cannot recommend it enough. Read it while looking at a fridge, then it's relevant to this episode.
0: <laughs> <laughs> cool. So, what have we learned today?
1: Today, we've learned that frozen pizza is more nutritious than unfrozen pizza (laughs) because it preserves more of the vitamins and minerals. Wonder cupboard. The Iceman cometh.